This is a special episode of the Immunology Podcast, Immunology 2023, Day 5. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Ratt. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. Today we're back with our final episode from Immunology 2023 in Washington, D.C. We'll be discussing the highlights of the last day and sharing our thoughts on how it all went. If you're tuning in for the first time, be sure to check out www.immunologypodcast.com or your favorite podcast app to see all of the episodes covering the first four days in the meeting. We're going to kick things off in just a minute, but before we get to that... If you're enjoying this podcast, we invite you to read more interviews on the Stem Cell Technologies website. The Immunology Profile series has immunologists telling their stories, discussing their research, and voicing their thoughts and opinions on current topics in immunology. You can find these interviews at stemcell.com forward slash immunoprofiles. All right. Well, diving right into it then and covering the last few, I got a couple of papers from one of the major symposia looking at mucosal immunity. Um, both are microbiome papers. Talks. Or yeah, and papers, almost papers. Some of them were papers or multiple papers and talks. So the first one was Isaac Chu from Harvard. He looks at nociception and how pain signaling affects the gut. And this time it was a um, partially a microbiome story, but he really found that in this one that the nociceptor neurons, these pain neurons, are known regulators of gut barrier function immunity, but he's trying to break some of this out. So the first bit he was able to isolate that small bowel pain fibers restrict both M cells and pyre patch formation, and that if you get rid of the pain fibers, you have bigger pyres patches which leads to increased invasion of salmonella because they use that as a, as a mechanism on the way through. And then he did some other cool stuff where he went and found that CGRP, which is a nociception peptide, so it's a signaling peptide for nociception of pain, and its receptor RAMP1 on the epithelial cells regulates mucus production, specifically in goblet cells. If you knock it out, you have thinner mucus. So then he went and used something we've talked about here before, the DREAD system, which comes from Brian Roth at UNC. These are drug-inducible receptors. So their GPCR is designed for neuronal work, but used otherwise now that's, that are specific receptors that only work to synthetic peptides, and then you insert them in your tissue of choice, and they activate that neuron, the, those cells that express it, because you do you know a FLOX-CRE-type system but they're, they're coupled the same ways as a neuronal receptor would be. And so you can actually induce this GPCR, but only with the drug and not endogenously. So you can see what happens at endogenous-like levels, um, ideally, sometimes it's overdrive, but you, you can like turn on specific neurons. So they do this to like eight or nine with receptors to figure out what neurons are important in the study that they're doing. And so this for a couple things, but they really emphasize in this stuff some new work with Tregs. So ROR gamma delta positive Tregs, so these resident microbiome-driven Tregs, and they show that this these trip V1 neurons are important in Treg function, and if you activate the neuron, you have less Tregs, and that exacerbates both DSS colitis and C. rodentum. But there's two sets of nerves that can do this, and so they then injected into specific sites antagonists and agonists and we're able to look at vagal nerves versus dorsal root ganglion nerves and found it's not the vagal nerve, it's a dorsal root ganglion nerve. And that's working through CGRP, not substance P, and that if they do a ramp one knockout, it restores the Treg function, to conditional function as well in the goblet cells. So you have pain nerve leads to down regulation of Tregs leads to worse colitis. So that was cool. The other paper I got to see was by Manuela Rafetelu. Um, she was studying 
a subpopulation of B cells that are CXCR2 positive in Peyer's patch development and did, presented a whole bunch of work that hadn't been presented anywhere before and was showing that these B cells are needed to reconstitute a Peyer's patch and that they're important for the patch's response to bacteria. And they also demonstrated that different microbes were important in generating these Peyer's patches. So if you take uh, Jackson mice, they have much smaller Peyer's patches than uh, taconic mice. And there's E. coli from the taconic mice can result in Jackson mice reconstitution of full-size pyre patches. They are able to also find that E. coli nissle, which is not common in Jackson mice and is considered kind of a probiotic commensal, does this well. But bacteroides, which are generally considered healthy, good bacteria, don't do this. And they found that there's a known early bloom in Enterobacter that goes away, and it's important for T cell, we think, like, like booting up of your T cell program, but they also now think it's important for your B cell program because it's important for recruiting these pyre patches after birth. And so they do some maternal studies and some tamoxifen induced systems and show a couple things. One, that it's really important right at birth to get these pyre patches going as this B cell recruitment. And then secondly, that if you do a tamoxifen induced deletion, you have diminished pyre patches after colonization. So if you delete it after they have them, they shrink. Um, and they establish that it's responsible for the trafficking to pyre's patches. And then lastly, they identify that curly, which is known as bacterial amyloid, is responsible for promoting Peyer's patch formation. And so that's the protein in the E. coli that's doing it. So those are my two talks. Nice, very interesting. So from my side, I attended the other symposium, so there were basically two. So I did the other one. And the first talk was from James Crowey. So he has been a guest in our show like almost two years ago. He's at Vanderbilt. And he gave a really, as always, the same when we had our discussion with him, really cool introduction and examples of the uh, promise of using human monoclonal antibodies for emerging diseases and for therapy, especially for people that are uh, not really responding to vaccination. So basically, he has uh, done amazing work uh, doing kind of rapid response to pathogens and generating monoclonal antibodies with therapeutic potential. And he has this huge system built in which he can get you know samples very quickly find uh from serum find b cells find antibodies that are against a particular pathogen and has a pipeline that allows him to really quickly uh, come up with you know a handful or even more uh, antibodies against a particular um, pathogen and this is very useful uh using monoclonal antibodies can help for uh pre-exposure prevention uh also if you have post Exposure prophylaxis. If you if you know you you got infected, you can have them as a treatment. Uh, it can also be used. He shows that it's also uh, useful as treatment for mild outpatient disease and also for severe disease. So there's and this has been particularly important now in the case of COVID, but also in the case of Ebola. And he mentioned a part, one of the um, efforts of the lab in which they actually obtain very highly. Um, neutralizing monoclonal antibodies from a Ebola survivor. Uh, and they do this by, you know, they get B cells from the patient, they enrich them based on reactivity to Ebola proteins, and they can uh, either single cell RNA seek the B cell receptors in these pro uh, cells. Uh, but they also have this huge uh, system called Berkeley Lights in which they um, can they have like an, uh, a multi-well, tiny, tiny multi-well system in which they can actually 
uh, look for activation and cytokine production from individual V cells and that then they can kind of go and pick them up individually in this little well and that makes it a lot easier for them to pick up functional antigen specific uh, B cells. And so he also mentions uh, and uh, examples as other viruses that have been um, uh, found antibodies against uh, uh, Rift Valley fever virus as well. And they can be extremely neutralizing below uh, one nanogram per mil uh, for neutralizing uh, capacity, which means that a human could be treated with tiny doses of like one milligram, which is really small and intramuscular, which really... I think it's it's so promising. Everything I, I every time I hear James Crow's presentation, I'm like, oh, this is the future of therapy. It's really cool. So uh, he did give a, a, a kind of a lot of uh, he went a lot on on how they um, went into finding neutralizing antibodies against COVID, and we did discuss that in our episode back then. He got access to very early, like the first samples of COVID patients in the U.S., and he really used his very uh, Established, and I think he has improved it ever since. Uh, system to find monoclonal antibodies. Uh, he has a lot of assays uh, that allow them to test large numbers of of clones at the same time and find uh, the neutralizing ones, and also even uh, titrate them all in as one really large high large scale system. And what's really cool is that so they they have he has a big platform in which are trying to find neutralizing antibodies against basically all emerging diseases and viruses, which is called the Ahead Hundred. So we also discussed it in the podcast when we when he was in. And I think it's so cool. I just I just he's like every virus we just want to have like a subset, like a handful of antibodies that are uh like are specific against every single potential pathogen uh out, out there. And one of the, so when we discussed with him back then, one of the uh, very promising uh, products that was coming out of their lab was a collaboration with AstraZeneca in which they they had two monoclonal antibodies that he had identified. They were really doing uh, clinical testing to see how they would protect uh, against COVID. And so there was also another talk from Mark Esser from AstraZeneca in which he showed the results of this collaboration and uh, how they use this AZD7442 uh, uh, product uh, to prevent SARS-CoV-2 infection or protect particularly susceptible people, people with uh, immunological deficiencies, transplant recipients, people on immunosuppressors. And also he gave an idea of how you know it was to bring this to the clinic, how they had to really uh, shuffle every all the priorities in the company in order to to get this uh, out on the market very, very quickly. And so he shows that they test this combination of antibodies and they showed that it really worked in, in hum, non-human primates. Very, and he was like, we were very surprised and very happy to see how how good they worked in preventing infection. And he went to talk about uh, his uh, the clinical trial Prevent, in which they tested prophylactic injections of uh, of uh, vulnerable people, and I think the results were very interesting. So they had people, as I mentioned, immunocompromised in one way or another, or with uh, blood cancer. So people that did not respond usually very well to vaccination. And they showed by in injecting a single 300 milligram dose intramuscular. So that's, I think, is very, very reasonable, very fairly easy uh, in, um, intervention. It could pr really confer protection against severe and critical COVID 
up to a year after injection of this patient. And this kind of worked throughout all the initial uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 variants. Unfortunately, it did kind of uh, stop working by, uh, I forgot, the the XBB strain. So, but it did hold on against uh, the early Omicron uh, variants as well. And it protected, uh, you know, susceptible people against the worst of the disease, which I think is very cool because... Yeah, we now often forget that these people, we think the vaccines are solving everybody's problem, but that's not really uh, the case. So um, this this is a really good approach, and I hope they're going to co- continue developing such monoclonal antibody treatments. They have a new, they mentioned they have a new type of antibody um, in which they do modifications to extend the half-life and and to kind of improve, they are engineering the antibodies to improve their function. And I think that's a lot of uh, research is gonna continue in that sense. And another talk that I liked was from Amy Hartman at the University of Pittsburgh. And she was studying Rift Valley virus uh, infection and immunity, as I I briefly mentioned it before. So Rift Valley fever virus is a, RNA virus, which is mosquito transmitted, but it's mostly a disease of livestock, and it does not transmit between humans. But so Amy Hartman's uh, research showed, and she really she looked into how uh, those patients that do get infected, uh, what are the effects? Because it's usually kind of an underestimated uh, disease. So in in cattle, one of the most uh, visible effects of Rift Valley virus infection is the loss of, of pregnancies by, by um, the animals that are pregnant. Uh, those who don't die, if they're pregnant, they usually lose their, their, um, their babies. And so she made a really good point in which it showed that um, closer, at, at a closer look at epidemiological studies shows that this is also the case for women uh, that are infected while pregnant also have a substantial increased risk of uh, of uh, miscarriage, and that is and that makes this a very um, you know severe, uh, really important uh, health issue for 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 humans as well. And her uh, lab studies the effect of infection in the placenta and how really is the maternal fetus interface, how the virus is finds its place there and how it affects the, the, the health of the fetus. And she shows that in, indeed RVFB can infect placenta in the mice. So they, in rats, she has a rat uh, system in which she shows that there is uh, infection of the placenta of the rats. And then she also makes some experiments using uh, placenta, human placenta explants and again show that this human placenta is susceptible to the infection uh, by this virus. And in fact, this virus replicates more in the in all placental tissues compared even to Zika virus. So this is a, a concerning infection in, in, in pregnant women. So she has this, this model, she shows this, and she finds uh, with more detail how the fetuses are being affected. The placenta is, is uh, increasing necrosis and hemorrhage. So that really uh, affects, of course, the, the fetuses. And she looks into uh, vaccination of dams from this rat model and shows that there is this ongoing, uh, there's this vaccination uh, that has been shown to uh, induce uh, neutralizing human uh, antibodies. And she shows that it also could be beneficial to be applied on even pregnant women to protect their fetuses from infection by this virus because at least in her rat models, it provides 
protection, uh, particularly through maternal IgG uh, from from breast milk. So I think so it's very important is a disease I never really thought about. And yeah, how important it is to keep an eye on everything. And the last thing I want to show, I want to just shout out, I attended the um, a workshop, the career workshop on how to have a successful postdoctoral experience, which was given by Lori Conlon, from, who's the director of the Office of Postdoctoral Services and Career Services at NIH. And I thought it was really nice. I just, I just wanted something different, so, and I wanted to take advantage of this workshop. And she gave a really nice talk about the expectations, about not, especially, I would say, a little bit focus on the American uh, postdoctoral system, which was fine, and also how, what the, how the NIH, what are the kind of uh, the opportunities the NIH particularly provides. Um, but I want to just say that, so typical, you know, importance of finding a good mentor, what are, what are mentors looking in a postdoctoral uh, fellow, how... What is the best way of looking? How to understand well, your position in a, as a postdoc? I just want to say that, of course, her presentation is hard to uh, summarize, but she did mention a couple of resources that I am definitely going to check out. So she she mentioned that the the office from the NIH, the Office of Intramural Training and Education, actually has a YouTube channel, and they have a ton of career oriented talks in there fully available free of charge for anybody. So I would definitely recommend those people that are interested in some career training from the NIH. Seems to be an excellent source. So it's the OITE, uh, if you search for that, uh, Office of Intramural Training and Education from the NIH, you'll find a lot of resources there. And there's also a careers blog from the same office. I think also very interesting. Um, so I, I like that. I appreciated the AI offering this, this workshop as well. And that was, that was my day. And this has been our conference. There you go. It has been. We're done, and you're now a better postdoc. I hope so. We'll see. All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of our Immunology 2023 episode series. We've met a lot of people and had a lot of fun here, and we can't wait till next year in Chicago in 24. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com. And also find us on Twitter at Immunopodcast or email us at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback. See you next time.